Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I once witnessed my mum vacuuming a pond. Well, vaxing it to be accurate. I don't understand. She was stood in the pond having emptied out all of the water, giving it a damn good hoover. Okay, (laughs) that makes more sense. (laughs) She wanted a clean pond. I once saw my granddad sweeping his lawn. (laughs) That's not even my fact. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I laugh in the face of bank holidays. Yeah, happy bank holiday Monday, guys. Hi. (laughs) And I'm Jen Offord and Charlton Athletic are giving me reason to dare to dream. It is the hope that will kill us all though, Jen. I'm very excited. I'll I'll pick this up in sport. I don't need to bore you with it, Hannah, it's fine. (laughs) Later on, I chat with Belfast-based journalist Siobhan Fenton, who you might have heard on That Bloody Woman, our two-part documentary exploring Margaret Thatcher's legacy. And if you haven't listened to that yet, you absolutely should. On this episode, Siobhan is chatting what the fuck is going on in Northern Ireland right now. We talk fannies, front bottoms, chuffs, cooches and caves of wonder with Bella Heeson, creator of the wonderfully titled new play... Rejoicing at her wondrous vulva, the young woman applauded herself. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be talking to those excellent Richardson Walshes, as in Kate and Helen, about the BBC's plans to hashtag change the game and the summer of sport ahead. And I do Blade Runner. Flying cars. Glow stick umbrellas. But first, Sade, spy whales and no mentions of new royal babies. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, like the Belfast Marathon, in that no one has any idea how long it'll go on for when it starts. Start your stopwatches now. Proof, if proof were needed, that the global bin fire continues to blaze. I couldn't help but click on the Daily Express's headline, Farage's revolution revealed plan for Westminster shock. This is not just about Brexit, because I thought it might be a laugh. And it was not. (laughs) Okay, it was fairly ridiculous, with the Express trumpeting that Farage is promising to put the boot at Westminster's backside by confirming his Brexit party will field a candidate in the Peterborough by-election on June the 6th. Because elections have gone so well for (laughs) Nigel. But anyway, yes, just as Nigel doesn't feel like leave has meant leave, the Brexit party doesn't just mean the Brexit party. What does it mean? Who the fuck knows? Not even Farage, I'd wager. The willy of the people's just making shit up as he goes along. But although finding Nigel Farage risible is an excellent and easy hobby, his language is terrifying. He talked about putting the fear of God into politicians, because politicians, many dealing with constant abuse that includes death and rape threats, and more on that in Sexism of the Week, aren't scared enough already. It's reminiscent of the cockface was it claiming that the Leave campaign won without a single bullet being fired, just a week after the murder of Joe Cox MP, who was shot and stabbed to death. Warm your hands, people. This fire's not going out anytime soon. What with all this talk of the upcoming, or maybe not upcoming, European elections, you may have missed the fact that there was a local election in a number of regions last week, which gave the country a chance to focus on something other than Brexit for... (laughs) Of course it didn't. (laughs) Everyone carried on behaving in exactly the same way, regardless of what the results appeared to be showing them. First up was Boris Johnson, continuing to play hard and fast with the truth. And by that, I mean full-on lying when he tweeted that he'd voted, (laughs) despite there not being any local elections in London. Where the voting was actually happening, pro-Remain parties had a cracking election, with the Liberal Democrats having had their best night since they sold a dozen I Agree With Nick t-shirts back in 2010. 
Not that that mattered. Theresa May announced it was a clear indication that we all just wanted to get on with Brexit. Although, to be fair, I think if she went back to the flat to find Philip playing Sade, champagne on ice and a bow tie around his cock, she'd take it to mean <laughs> it was a clear message to get on with Brexit. The media, and indeed the justice system's carelessness with language around rape, shows no sign of letting up. From the BBC's focus on the fact that Alex Hepburn, recently jailed for five years for raping a sleeping woman, was a cricketer, don't care, to the statement from Hepburn's barrister, Michelle Healy QC, who said her client had expressed true remorse, adding, he has lost everything, his career, his good character, and ultimately his liberty. His good character. Uh, If we can put the fact he's a convicted rapist aside for a moment, let's take a look at Hepburn's sexual conquest game, StatChat, on WhatsApp in which the goal was to collect as many sexual encounters as possible, and in which Hepburn, according to Judge Jim Tyndall, demeaned women and trivialised rape, a word you personally threw around lightly. Props to Judge Tyndall for his sentencing statement, by the way, which was free of victim-blaming and firm on enthusiastic consent. Sex is something people do together, he said. Sex is never something a man does to a woman, arrogantly assuming consent, in a relationship, let alone as you did. And yes, this should be standard rather than something to be applauded. But sadly, it still isn't. More bad news if you're unfortunate enough to be a victim of a sex crime. It was reported last week that the Crown Prosecution Service would ask victims of sexual offences to hand over their phones to police or risk having their case dropped. New forms give consent for the police to download contents of digital devices in order for data, photographs, emails and internet browsing history, apps and social media accounts to be examined. And a victim may be investigated if a separate offence is discovered upon examination. Something that I'm sure people at their most vulnerable who've recently had their trust, privacy and bodies violated will feel super comfortable with. The CPS responded to criticism and said that such data and social media activity would only be considered when relevant to an individual case, and in fact all cases, not just sex offences, and that only information relevant to the case would be disclosed to defence lawyers. The policy had, it said, been in place for some time and the new forms are designed to give consistency and clarity to a process and how data could be used. Reports suggested that the National Disclosure Improvement Plan had come about in response to some high-profile cases which collapsed after information on the complainants' phones were later discovered, leading to those acquitted complaining of miscarriages of justice. And it's probably worth pointing out at this stage that only an estimated 15% of incidents of sexual violence are ever even reported to the police and that new figures released last week showed that only 1.7% of those reported were prosecuted in 2018. Guinness World Records is said to be conducting an immediate review into its guidelines regarding the fastest marathon in a nurse's uniform after this year's London Marathon. Nurse Jessica Anderson was told before she started the race that as she was wearing scrubs and not dressed like the cast of Carry On Nursing, if she did break the record, it wouldn't count. And she did, and it didn't. This led nurses, male and female, to call bullshit, including Anderson, who called the rules sexist and outdated. And rightly so. Officials had told Anderson a nurse's uniform was officially a dress, a pinafore, and a cap. Which sounds more like a fancy dress costume to me, but there you have it. Yeah, it sounds like what I had in my like dress-up kit. Yeah, I wonder if it had like one of those little plastic watches watches that yeah. up. tights are apparently optional now i'm no marathon runner as you can probably tell but <laughs> i reckon tights would also be uncomfortable a potential fire risk and most likely around your ankles by the time you finished yeah because they don't mean running tights there do they jen they no. mean uh, a nylon pantyhose mm. can you imagine the friction there oh my god they start a fire 
Exactly. My thighs would definitely start a fire. You'd be covered in balloons at the very least when you got there. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a Russian spy whale. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right. A beluga whale found off the coast of Norway last week was probably sent there on a covert mission by the Russians, according to a marine biologist. <laughs> Sounds far-fetched. Oh, yes. let's look at the facts. The whale was wearing a GoPro camera holder, but no camera, apparently. Two, the harness to which the holder was attached was apparently sourced from St. Petersburg. Three, a Russian scientist reckoned it was Russian kit. Four, there's a Russian naval base nearby. Five, beluga whales don't even live near there. And six, the whale was friendly, like all good spies. (laughs) This is a real thing, though, apparently, which I had not heard of before. Responding to the claims of Professor Auden Reichardson that this was probably linked to the Russian Navy, Colonel Victor Baronet told a Russian broadcaster, we have military dolphins for combat roles, we don't cover that up. However, he added, if we were using the animal for spying, do you really think we'd attach a number with a message, please call this number? Ah, it's a double bluff! <laughs> the double bluff it's what they want you to think the whale is doing that it isn't doing but really it is doing very sneaky how big a fucking harness do you need to get around a whale they're quite little you get a harness on a whale the pictures i saw made it look a bit more sort of porpoisey than whaley okay i struggled to get a lead on a dog (laughs) that's true there were mitigating factors it was a friendly whale so it was okay with it. it, it was it work. wearing tights? <laughs> <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week again where women politicians are expected to waste their valuable time and emotional energy responding to rape comments targeted at them by male politicians. I mean... I almost can't even, because I'm loath to give Carl Benjamin, UKIP star MEP candidate, any more oxygen. But the weapons-grade shit has been talking about raping Jess Phillips. Again. I wouldn't even rape you, Art Jess Phillips, the YouTuber and Gamergate leader, posted in response to Phillips' tweets about rape and death threats sent to women on the internet. It got him banned from Twitter. UKIP leader Gerard Batten, who has previously called the remark satire, again defended Benjamin's tweet during an appearance on the BBC's Politics Live programme, claiming it was fine because the candidate said he wouldn't rape the MP. But in new footage that Benjamin posted to YouTube on April the 26th, just three days before Batten's interview, he says he might rape Phillips with enough pressure. Jess Phillips MP is an inspiration to thousands of people. Whether you agree with her politics or not, she works her arse off for a constituent in Birmingham Yardley. And she's a tough nut who's dealt with a lot of shit from a lot of shits. And even though, and I cannot stress this enough, Jess nor any other woman should be having to deal with this abuse, she handled it with an astounding measure of calm. Jess said, I don't really know what to say. As someone who works still every day with victims of rape, the idea that it is funny or a joke to hear someone saying that if forced they would rape me... There is a childish misunderstanding that rape is about sex rather than power and violence. The Electoral Commission should surely have standards about who can and can't stand for election. If Facebook and Twitter can ban these people for hate speech, how is it that they are allowed to stand for election? But it doesn't end there. It seems Benjamin's arseholery brings all the shit biscuits to the yard. As Jess wrote on Twitter... I guess what I'm finding hard is the awakening to an even bigger audience of the would we or wouldn't we rape Jess Phillips because of legitimising of the perpetrator. 
I've dealt with it in drips for nearly four years and just deleted or blocked. It's like a torrent at the moment. Just, just no. Stop the world. I want to get off. Come on, monkey overlords. <laughs> hey there, people of London and the surrounding areas. Anyone who's been paying attention will know that we've moved to a new London venue, King's Place, and a super venue it is too. We'll be back there on May the 19th when we'll be chatting to She of Best Newcomer nomination at last year's Edinburgh Fringe, Sindhu V, and the legendary Catherine Tate. Am I bothered though? Actually, yes. Yes, I am. For info on this and all our shows, keep your beady eyes on our rather charming new website, www.standardissuepodcast.com. I am joined on the phone by Siobhan Fenton, a journalist who specialises in writing about gender, politics and Northern Ireland. Siobhan, there's a lot to go on there at the moment. Yeah, certainly a lot happening here. What is the current Northern Ireland situation for women's rights? At the moment, the situation in Northern Ireland is is quite bleak. Uh, to be honest, I think Northern Ireland has never had a great reputation for, for women's rights, but certainly in the last few years, things do seem to be getting kind of even worse. Famously, of course, abortion is illegal in Northern Ireland. It has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the world. And so it's illegal in almost all circumstances, including incest and, and rape and fetal fetal abnormality. Over the course of the last few years, the United Nations has been calling on the UK government to, to kind of intervene and legalise it. But Westminster is kind of still, still refusing to do so. A lot of people would be concerned that it's due to their arrangement with the DUP um, at the moment, the confidence and supply um, deal that they have. And then the other concerning thing in terms of women's rights at the moment is the fact that Northern Ireland hasn't had a government now since January 2017. So it's been over two years. And so quite a few different parliaments and governments around the world in response to this new wave of feminism have over the last few years been introducing new legislation about protecting the rights of women and girls. So we saw recently in, in England and Wales, for instance, that upskirting is now finally going to be made illegal. And as well, if new legislation has been brought in to protect women from coercive control and other forms of domestic violence. But none of those will apply to Northern Ireland simply because there's no government in place to kind of sign off bills. So it means that kind of as each month and as each year goes by, Northern Ireland falls further and further behind in terms of women's rights, um, simply because there's, there's no government to actually pass any of this legislation. But even with Stormont not sitting for, like you say, more than two years now, Westminster could just make those illegal in Northern Ireland as well? Uh, yeah, so at the moment um, there's been a lot of kind of pressure being put on the government with the new domestic violence legislation to make that apply to Northern Ireland as well. Also, at the moment, uh, stalking isn't a specific criminal offence in Northern Ireland where it is in the rest of the UK, which is very concerning here in terms of people trying to get prosecutions because instead it has to come as mm-hmm. come under other forms of harassment legislation, but they aren't quite accurate enough in terms of getting prosecutions. You would think that that's the sort of thing that wouldn't really be controversial for the Westminster government to make legal or to, to change the laws on. But the, the concern would be that they perhaps are worried that they'd be setting a precedent that if they start intervening in, in some areas, then the, the next issue that they'd be asked to legislate on would, would be abortion. And because the DUP are so extremely opposed to that in, in all circumstances, the Westminster government, they're just saying that, um, that they can't intervene. The concern would be that that's because they're worried about setting a precedent, maybe, which could then later apply to abortion legislation. Do you feel like the current UK government understands Northern Ireland politics? Um, I I don't think uh, many people here yeah, would, would have much uh, confidence in, in terms of yeah, this understanding of, of North Rand within the rest of the UK. I think Brexit has definitely really exposed that in quite a huge way. The fact that it seems that many people in 
Britain just didn't understand that the UK actually had a land border with the rest of the EU, for instance. I'm sorry um, with my head in my hands. Just It's just incredible that that wasn't like the most important thing. Yeah, and then I think it was kind of even surprising how just in terms of both the, the Leave and Remain camps didn't seem to kind of twig until after the referendum had kind of come and gone and then it seemed to come as a massive shock to people. Oh, God, we remember, remember Northern Ireland sitting there across, across the RC and we actually have to do something with it now. So I think... A lot of people here feel it's kind of really come to, to bite Britain in terms of the fact that they kind of maybe neglected Northern Ireland for quite a while. And in particular, too, we obviously our Northern Ireland secretary at the minute is uh, Karen Bradley. And unfortunately, I think she's perhaps been one of the most gaff-prone um, Northern Ireland secretaries for, for several years. And it's unfortunate timing, perhaps, that she she's in charge at such an important moment for, for Northern Ireland. But it seems to be the case that because she's very, very loyal to Theresa May personally, that she's perhaps been put in place more because of her um, personal loyalty rather than skill or Northern Ireland expertise perhaps. Yeah it has felt quite often that you need to get Karen sat down and show her a map and just point out that Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Yeah which you'd like to think that would be the kind of the, the, the basic stuff you ask someone you're like your, your bare minimum <laughs> job criteria in the first interview but um, yes I think every day she's kind of learning a bit more but it's maybe slightly terrifying um how much she kind of seems to still have to learn this far into the job it's yeah very worrying and it is worrying and it is terrifying your book the good friday agreement explores the northern ireland peace process 20 years on from the signing of the agreement but it looks like brexit is in danger of destroying that agreement uh, yes i think a lot of people perhaps outside of northern ireland don't kind of realize maybe how you kind of finely balanced um everything is is northern ireland and so within the good friday agreement it's a very complex settlement but it basically kind of sets out exactly what the dynamics will be between the republic of ireland and northern ireland and the rest of the uk a lot of people are very worried that brexit just completely rewrites that and kind of takes a sledgehammer almost to some very kind of sensitive and very quite fraught still and um, very contentious difficult issues and then, of course, because Northern Ireland, the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted Remain, I think a lot of people feel a certain amount of resentment and frustration that this, you know, isn't something that they themselves wanted. Um, but it's perhaps being imposed on them by the rest of the UK. And when you sort of see people like Jacob Rees-Mogg or David Davis, their attitude seems to be, oh, well, it'll be fine. We'll just we'll just ply on and you know, the peace process will probably be OK. Not hugely reassuring for people here when it's um, something which is so, so fraught and still so, so raw for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think until very recently, it felt like people had just forgotten the troubles that even happened. Well, people over here, obviously not in Northern Ireland, but there's been an increase in dissident Republican activity recently by a group calling themselves the new IRA. And so it must be becoming at the forefront of people's minds. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think it's it's been yeah hugely concerning um, that dissident Republicans seem to be increasing their activity over the last couple of years. And um, so distant Republicans would be people who still support United Ireland by violent means. And so they'd be very, a very small marginal group within Northern Ireland society. And most people would completely disagree with them. But they seem to be, over the last few years, have been kind of increasing the number of attacks that they're carrying out. Last summer in Derry, there was kind of quite prolonged rioting there, which is very concerning. And then in, in January of this year, there was a bomb at the courthouse in, in Derry. And then just just last week, we had a, a journalist, Larry McKee, was um, shot and, and killed, um, and the group calling themselves the new IRA have, have claimed responsibility. And I think for so many people here, it's just terrifying that the prospect that we could be going back to some of these really harrowing issues, which a lot of people had thought was kind of thankfully sort of settled and resolved with the Good Friday Agreement, in that 
future generations would, would never have to grow up with that same kind of fear. Um, and so there's yeah definitely a lot of concern here that we could be starting to be drawn back into some of those really dark days of the past. There's also the fact that the DUP seem to be exacerbating this with how they're treating the Brexit deal. And they actually have a really slender stake on Stormont if Stormont was to come back into sitting, right? Yeah, so one of the proposed ways of resolving the kind of backstop issues that some people have proposed that Northern Ireland's uh, Parliament Stormont could, could have a say in any future changes to, to the backstop. But I think it's, it's a lot of people in Britain to be, seem to be proposing that, but it doesn't seem to be the case that Stormont is going to come back any time soon. Because I think that at the moment we haven't even had any negotiations or talks between the DUP and Sinn Féin about it for almost almost a year now. So I think the prospect of Stormont coming back seems to be getting even slimmer as each kind of day goes on. At the same time, I suppose, for the DUP, the fact that they have this confidence and spy arrangement which puts them into the heart of government in Westminster. I suppose for them, Stormont becomes a bit of a afterthought when there's so much more power to be gained in London so it definitely seems to be that that's their kind of focus at the moment but maybe when that arrangement when it finally falls apart between the the DUP and the Conservatives then the DUP might be more inclined to go back into government at Stormont but I think certainly while Brexit's happening and while the DUP and Conservatives continue their fraught um, sort of arrangement I think that that will be the DUP's kind of focus and all their energy will be based in London for the next while. So what can we do to help, to help particularly the women of Northern Ireland? At the moment, the Westminster government has a consultation open about the domestic violence legislation. Um, and so they're open for submissions. And if you wanted to, to get in touch or contact your, your local MP and urge them to, to put in a submission saying to please include Northern Ireland and ensure that Northern Ireland women aren't left behind whenever this legislation is passed. And then as well as with just, just trying to familiarise yourself with the, the situation in Northern Ireland at the minute and trying to kind of support different women's rights groups here, in particular the main pro-choice group is called Alliance for Choice. And then also the Marriage Equality Campaign, which is campaigning for same-sex marriage for LGBT couples. It's called Love Quality. And so if you can kind of support them as well, donate or do any campaigning on, on their behalf and kind of read up on their materials and share share what you can. I think it means a lot to people here, just so that people you know they're not completely forgotten and they have other people in in Westminster still still pushing for people's rights here and so it's not just the DUP's voice being the the only voice that's heard. Mm -hmm. I can vouch that Alliance for Choice have excellent merchandise really good merch. Brilliant t-shirts and hoodies I think. Siobhan your book The Good Friday Agreement is it available in all good bookshops? It is indeed for a highly reasonable price should you wish to, to purchase one. I'm here in the studio with Jen. Hello. And Mick. Oi, oi. And Bella Heesom. Hi. Bella is here to talk to us about her tremendously titled new play, Rejoicing at Her Wondrous Vulva. The young woman applauded herself. I've got a rough idea of what that's about, <laughs> but let's start there. Clues in the title. I'd say the, the angle that I'm coming at it from is a kind of wanting to celebrate female sexuality and to look at the way that our feelings around sex and also around our bodies and our identity more broadly are shaped by society so the thing that I do is I look at internal conflict so rather than looking at for example the focus being on the relationship that a woman has with her lovers it's the relationship the woman has with herself that I find most interesting it took me a while to realize I have a, a habit it seems of working out my own stuff through writing a play and um, <laughs> through writing this one I kind of realized that I was really confident and empowered and feminist in my life 
broadly, but that when it came to trying to talk to my partner about sex, I was suddenly really awkward and started feeling a bit inadequate and uncomfortable and like I didn't know where that was coming from well you've come to the right place <laughs> that's Same me all over <laughs> <laughs> basically I figured out that I'd been receiving all these messages my whole life that I had rejected and so I thought they weren't affecting me but they were because they go deep especially when you receive them when you're young um, there's this amazing metaphor in an amazing book called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski which I recommend to everybody she uses the metaphor of a garden the garden of your sexuality as people plant seeds when you're young which are like ideas about sex and your body and things so some of the plants in my garden were only boys masturbate female genitals are gross body hair on women is disgusting messages that you get from advertising or from your peers or from whoever And I obviously don't agree with any of those things. I don't think that they're true. But this metaphor of the garden made me realise that even though I think of those things as weeds, if you like, they're still there. I haven't actually got rid of them. And so in moments of insecurity, they're kind of preying on you secretly, quietly in the background and shaping the way that you respond to things. So even though you might have rejected them, they still might affect your confidence or the way that you feel. And the the show is kind of looking at that process that when you're growing up, the way that your ideas about what you're supposed to be are shaped and basically trying to kind of break out of it, break free. (laughs) And the wondrous vulva is actually a quote from a story about an ancient Sumerian sex goddess called Inanna who rejoiced at her wondrous vulva. As soon as I read that line, I was like, that's what I want. That's how I want to feel. And so it was kind of an aspirational naming of the play to go, right, by the end of the play, we're going to get there. That's, we're going to have women applauding themselves and leaving feeling amazing about their bodies instead of a bit ashamed. They're not very easy to have a look at. I think that's part of the problem, <laughs> isn't it? You know, you can do the one leg up on the toilet hand mirror thing, but because a lot of it is so internal, it's yeah, very hard. Also... We're not taught about it. I mean, a lot of people don't even use the word vulva. I think it's still common that most people use the word vagina to refer to all of the external female genitalia. And as I explained in the show, the vagina is the internal tube of muscle that leads to the womb and the external bit is called the vulva. And I think vulva is a much nicer word. I think it sounds all kind of like velvety and sort of luxurious. I like it. Um, So I think people should use it more. It's the kind Um, of word I could take a bath in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, you're right. It's not as visible. And one of the other things we talk about in the play is the internal clitoris, which I genuinely only found out about like a few years ago when oh, I was hello. researching I've the play. never heard of that. Oh no, my god, massive. really? Okay, this is honestly it's such a revelation. Everybody thinks the clitoris is just this little kind of, you know, oh, pea okay. button. You mean everything at the everything back? Everything inside. Okay. Like I thought the... you meant there was a second one. And I was like, oh, no, no. fucking hell, I've been missing out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was uncomfortable to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, in the show, there are lots of different modes of storytelling, but one of them is there are these comic duologues between brain and clitoris, and we have these big silly hats, and so so there's a, a massive clitoris hat which has the bulbs and the core and the kind of the big shape that not everybody is familiar with still. So I, I'm kind of on a bit of a mission to get awareness about that raised as well. It really annoys me that people draw cock and balls everywhere. You know, when you're at school, all over the textbooks, yeah. all over everything, you've got these kind of cartoony thing. And I'm like, I want the vulva. I'm sorry, the clitoris. The vulva is, also can be drawn, but I think the clitoris is like the one that makes a nice little character, a bit like the cock and balls that you could <laughs> You're obviously not alone in this because the sad fact is that labioplasty, is that what it's called? I believe so. Is, well, a massive phenomenon and continues to be, which people associate with that comes from porn. Yeah. But that obviously is coming from 
women are feeling less confident because of generally what men say to them. We have just met your son outside. Do you feel differently about your bits and pieces after having a child? It's interesting. Actually, I'm afraid that this is going to sound like I'm just saying what I think I should say as a good feminist, because I'm really aware and I have friends who do feel less confident around their vulva post-birth. But genuinely, I'm so impressed with my body (laughs) um, and what it did in giving birth to a baby that I actually feel great about it. But I do think part of the reason for that is that I was writing this show before I got pregnant and it has genuinely helped me to become more confident in my body. And I think one of the key things is that sometimes I think we talk about how we should feel and from a feminist perspective but obviously we should love ourselves and and actually if you've been given all these messages about what is sexy and for example you think that vulvas are supposed to be really neat and the you know the inner labia are supposed to be smaller than the outer labia and all of those things and probably they're supposed to be hairless if you've seen porn and things then to just decide that your body which might be different from all those images that you've seen is sexy it's quite a difficult thing to do and so part of what i've i've done is actively search for images of a wider variety of bodies so that i can redefine what i think is sexy so rather than just thinking well i don't care if it's sexy because i want to be right on like well i do want to be sexy most people do you know and so one example was that um i've grown out my armpit hair and i googled sexy armpit hair (laughs) and basically just found loads of images of like 70s nudes of women with armpit hair and big bush but photos which are supposed to be sexy you know have been kind of shot in that way and after looking at a load of them I was like yeah actually it's quite nice like they sort of match and it looks good and I like it instead of it being a statement and I did a similar thing um, when I was pregnant of looking up kind of images of birth <laughs> and just seeing lots of like on Instagram, there are accounts where you can see the head actually coming out of the vagina. And I think that made a real difference in terms of how I then viewed my own vulva post birth, because I'd seen all of these images and I would genuinely been in awe of them because it's an amazing thing. Whereas I think if my diet previous to giving birth had just been lots of images of perfect vulvas in porn or whatever then I probably would have gone oh no my vulva doesn't look like that anymore and I feel bad about it so I think that's a really big thing just kind of broadening the palette of information that you're accessing and that kind of shapes how you feel about yourself. Just on that point about Mm. armpit hair recently a friend of mine posted on Facebook that she was thinking about growing her armpit hair out and she wondered what people thought. And what I found staggering was actually men appeared to be more accepting of this than women did. Is that something that you've had experience Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that, actually, because I wanted to pick up on something you said just before about the way that women feel being caused by how men talk to them or what men expect of them or something. And one of the things that I'm kind of intentionally exploring in the show is the fact that it's not that often that it's a specific man telling you to do a specific thing. I think it's really useful to distinguish between men and the patriarchy. Um, And actually, the patriarchy is telling us that we should be hairless and X, Y, Z. Lots of individual men don't agree with that and, in fact, are feeling 
pressures of their own from the forces of the patriarchy. That if women are supposed to be these kind of helpless, perfect, smooth damsels, then the men are supposed to be these strong, muscular, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't know, actually, I don't know what the trend is, and I'm out of date whether men are supposed to be hairless or hairy now. But um, <laughs> seems like a mixture, depending on who you are. But the, it's not it's not good for anyone. And actually, my experience of individual men, I've been very lucky. They're really lovely men. You know, my husband is really lovely and he's perfectly happy. I mean, he also knew, like when I grew up my armpit hair, that he didn't really have any option but to be supportive. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't going to be a debate. But he just, after a while, went... Yeah, I quite like it. You know, it was, it really wasn't a big deal. Um, it was something new to get used to because when I met him, I shaved my armpits. But other than that, it wasn't an issue. You know, it's a cliche and it's not necessarily the point. But I think it's probably true that a lot of the time, if a man is with a naked woman and maybe going to be having sex, then he just doesn't he's care. Quite does happy it? about yeah. it and not too bothered yeah. about it. I love the image of your husband being really supportive about you growing your armpit hair. Like you know when they measure kids on door frames. Yeah. Like he was doing a similar <laughs> thing with that. your armpit hair. You know, like in fairness, I had a mate whose boyfriend really didn't like fringes. You know. <laughs> And she was going to get a fringe cut in. And it was, you know, it took a bit of getting used to. So same kind of thing. (laughs) And I think it's okay to have individual preferences as well. I don't particularly like it when my husband has facial hair because it's a bit stubbly and uncomfortable when I kiss him. I think your partner can have an opinion about the hair that you grow or a preference. But it's more the kind of the institutional disgust whereby there's just an assumption that how could a woman ever have this hair which naturally grows on her body of course she must remove it it's like why should that be the default the default should be that it's there and then you choose to get rid of it if you feel like it and that's fine if people want to I'm not judging you know uh, it's it's your business using you with your armpits yeah Yeah. there's a reason why they play relaxing panpipe music in uh, places where you can get your bits waxed yeah (laughs) Yeah, and I have hardcore pubes, so when I when I have my pubes waxed, I have a little droplet of blood where every single hair has gone. So you know, that's there has to be a good reason to do that, from my perspective. (laughs) There are not enough pan pipes in the world, are there? You need an actual physical pan pipe band. Yeah, (laughs) that would be awkward. No, or distracting. In the room with Mm. you. Yeah. Back to vulvas. Mm. <laughs> Obviously, our relationship with that part of our body can be problematic mental health-wise, but also actual physical health-wise, because I think the results are that pe- that women going for cervical screening has dropped, and a lot of that is put down to an embarrassment about that part of our bodies. Yeah, it's, it just makes me so sad. And I think this goes right back to when you're really young, because in sex ed, when I was at school, and I don't think it's changed as much as you would like to think, that you didn't talk about it. You had a diagram of the reproductive system, which was like the ovaries and the womb and the vagina. But I don't think I was ever shown a diagram of a vulva. I was never told about the labia and the clitoris and let alone the internal clitoris. Mm -hmm. And so, as you say, it's all tucked away. Nobody talks about it. You don't know what it's supposed to look like. You don't get to see anyone else's. I mean, it might sound silly, but guys are more likely to see other penises because if you're naked around each other you can see them whereas you'd have to really get between your mate's legs to see their vulva well I think that's guys that will have seen more than I will have and then therefore that's kind of why that opinion can be quite hurtful or whatever because you think well Jesus he's got a frame of reference yeah he's seen other vulvas <laughs> Which is yeah. what I call my, my vulva <laughs> I call it my frame of reference <laughs> I think we need to kind of 
banish that shame and that embarrassment really young. And I think one of the things is genuinely using the correct anatomical terms because... I mean, I, I know my mum called it a fanny. That's fine, but it was just the whole general area. I wouldn't have been able to kind of define what the different parts were. There's your bum, and then there's all that stuff, which is your fanny. Yeah. And if you if you are wanting to get medical advice, it's useful to be able to name the specific parts. If, there's, if you're concerned about a specific area, if you don't even have the words to explain that, then that's really awkward. I'm not confident I could draw a decent diagram of my frame of reference. <laughs> My cave of wonders. <laughs> my downstairs. Now, you have had some interest in this from television already. Yeah, so I'm developing the script at the moment with Sid Gentle, the producers of The Amazing Killing Eve, which oh, wow. I've inhaled the first season of. It's really exciting. It's early days. We're just kind of in the process of drafting the first script, you know, the uh, kind of and a, and a pitch document. So it hasn't been commissioned yet, but we already have interest from the BBC, so... Fingers crossed. Fulvers for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have become quite evangelical. Like My last show, My World Has Exploded a Little Bit, was about my parents dying. And so it felt a little bit the me show. <laughs> like, here's my emotions and my feelings and it's all about me. Whereas with this show, although it's kind of rooted in autobiography, I also did a lot of research and spoke to a lot of different women and things. And having shared the work in progress version of the show and seen the response to it, I'm just going, everybody needs this. Like, people need to talk about it more. People need to be just given a catalyst for conversation as much as anything. And if somebody, some weird actor-writer who's willing to reveal her innermost secrets on stage so that everyone else feels more comfortable about it then that's a really good opportunity and telly just means I can get to more people if I can get in people's homes and I can get teenage girls watching it and talking about it and you know older women talking I mean my grandma came to see my work in progress and she said that she was surprised by certain things in there so I feel like there's people of kind of all ages and all walks of experience walks of life have stuff to gain from just engaging with these ideas and these thoughts and so mostly I'm desperate to get it on telly just to spread the word Uh, (laughs) in the meanwhile where can people see this so we're at Overhouse which is a lovely little theatre right by Oval Cricket Camp and we're in the downstairs theatre of course (laughs) (laughs) I need to be working that pun. Um, From the 9th to the 25th of May at 7.30pm. Terrific. And where can people find you if they'd like to know more? Bellaheesome.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Bella. It's been really interesting. Hello, Hannah here, constant interrupter. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we discuss all things women's sport. Congratulations to Manchester City women who beat West Ham 3-0 in the FA Cup on Saturday at Wembley. I would love to be able to tell you that that was in front of a record crowd. Unfortunately, it was slightly down on last year's crowd of just over 45,000 to just over 43,000. And that probably wasn't helped by the Premier League refusing to move the West Ham men's team game 
which took place at exactly the same time and just across the way in East London. The FA had announced earlier in the week that 52,000 tickets had been issued. So, thanks guys. Appreciate it. While on the subject, commiserations to Chelsea women's team who were knocked out of the Champions League by Lyon in the semi-finals. But in happier news, Charlton Athletic, the men's team, Soz, are in the playoffs for promotion to the Championship. So I am a very happy bunny. Anyway, last week I was very lucky to be invited to BBC Sports launch event for its Summer of Women's Sport where I saw some pretty cracking montages and only nearly cried about five times as well as watched a really, really excellent panel discussion between Dame Claire of Balding, friend of the show, Gabby Logan, Alex Scott, Sarah Bayman, Ebony Rainford-Brent and Jeanette Quachi. It was really, really exciting to be there and to catch up with some absolutely top birds from the world of sport including Alex and Sarah Catherine Frickin Granger and Liz Nicol, the head of UK Sport. You'll be hearing all of that over the coming weeks right here. But for now, here are friends of the show, the excellent Richardson Walsh's Kate and Helen, former hockey players and Olympic gold medalists, chatting about the event and being a Spurs fan, among other things. I'm joined by Kate and Helen Richardson Walsh, who you will remember as the hockey legends who were on the podcast last year. Hi, ladies. Hello. Good evening. We are at a BBC event for their sort of launch for the summer of sport. They're going to be showing a lot of women's sport over this summer. What did you make of all that? I thought it was amazing. I think firstly to see a really diverse panel of pundits and experts and commentators who are representing it on TV and then for them to talk about all of the incredible sports coming up this summer it was just so exciting wasn't yeah. it bloody marvellous it was <laughs> the, the hashtag has changed the game and it, it really does feel like the game is changing I think we had moments you know, London 2012 was a moment again Rio 2016 and then kind of you know the Football World Cup different moments whereas now this feels like it is a proper movement and stuff is changing which is brilliant so what are you most looking forward to seeing over the summer I think first and foremost I think the the Women's Football World Cup I think will be the biggest ever Women's World Cup we've ever seen and we're trying to sneak out there we're trying to heavily fight get tickets (laughs) one game we can make though is the final so uh, (laughs) we need to hope England can be there yeah I know and then I think the the netball the the roses you know we we got to know Tracy Neville pretty well over the last few years and the netballers to be fair and they were so amazing with the hockey team when we did so well in Rio and we feel a bit like we're kindred spirits and with I'm so backing them to do well at that World Cup. Yeah, the football, uh, the netball, obviously there's the hockey, the European Hockey Championships is going on this summer, which we'll be working on and commentating on. So The cricket. The cricket. Helen, you love cricket. Yeah, I love the cricket. <laughs> Everything. The ashes. We just love it all, actually. So while we're on the subject of hockey, I have seen recently there is a risk that GB are not going to qualify for the next Olympics. What's going on, gold medalists, before me? <laughs> the women's team in particular had a really rough time. They had a period without a coach, and then the coach came back, and then he left again. Then we've got a new coach now in, bedded in, but literally for the last month. They've had how many players out? Six of the players that did continue have been out taking time away or out with concussion and they just had a massive period of transition to be honest and we think they will qualify it'll just be a different route than the normal probably i know from our last interview that you are a spurs fan how are you feeling right now and just for the listeners this is the day after spurs lost at home to ajax 
right? Yeah, I mean, I was at the game last night. Got a friend who's got a spare season ticket, so she was very kind to give it to me. And it was a bit disappointing, I must say. But the team is so decimated at the moment. We've got so many injuries. And actually, by the end, I was I was quite pleased that it stayed at 1-0. And I think we can re- definitely recover the, that in the return leg. We get Sonny back in. He can bang in some goals. And I always keep the faith. Always. But equally as exciting, it's Tottenham ladies team. Yes. Oh my god, what's the score? Oh wow. They're playing Durham, I think, currently now. And if they get a, no, 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 no. Playing Aston Villa. They're playing Aston Villa. And if they get a point, if they get a point, they get promoted. Yeah. Wow. And we went in to see the Tottenham ladies. Helen trained with them. I just watched because I got Toblerone feet. But it was amazing. You support Manchester United, so. On the men's side, we won't talk about that. Um, on the women's side... I mean, amazing that, that frankly, that they've got a women's side and that they should have had one for a bloody long time. And, frankly, Manchester City have been completely paving the way in that regard. And now we're playing catch-up. And I think it's brilliant they've been promoted. I think it's great to have the two Manchester sides. Hopefully they'll be fighting out for... You know, the trophies in the FA Women's Super League. It's exciting for women's football. You get all these big clubs with all the big teams up there. It'll be good. Good for the game. So, so thank you so much, ladies. All right. It's lovely to see you. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. <laughs> Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did you watch this week? This week we watched 1982's Blade Runner. We sure uh, did. Which was your choice. Which unites some, some big beasts in the world of film. Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick. Yep. Harrison Ford. Indeed. And Van Gellis. Rutger Hauer. I'm not sure Rutger Hauer necessarily classes as a big beast given that if you were going to ask someone to name something that Rutger Hauer did Guinness advert yeah it'd be this or the Guinness advert or that thing where the guy gets pulled apart by the two the highway the the hitchhiker or something like that anyway I can't help but notice they're all men well this film does have I would say potentially two quite iconic female characters in them but I think it probably says who you are as a person depending on which one it is that you want to I am Rachel yeah see I am all about Daryl Hannah in this even if it made me very very uncomfortable that I had to write things like Hannah is fucking epic in my own notebook (laughs) which was weird like that's the first time you've written that yes considered a classic I have to say not so much by me I like it I think it's really good but I've never been quite as into it as a lot of people I know Ah, that said, it does contain probably the film quote that I say more than anything else, and I've got more laughs out of. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe, which you just say at the end of any sentence and people laugh. Top tip there. When are we? 2019. Yes. This very year. Not not quite yet. We've got till November for it all to come true, right? <laughs> yeah. I think things are going to have to get pace on. Well, we need to sort Brexit out first. Yes. The Tyrell Corporation 
has invented robots that are basically like humans but better, which is everybody's greatest fear. They lack empathy, but in 2019, who doesn't? (laughs) And in order to stop these things rising up... The replicant. ...getting real feelings and becoming all-powerful, they have a built-in shelf life, and more on that later... They mostly work off-planet, or off-world, as it's called. Off-colonies. We don't really know that much about, except that that they're not Earth, and people are being very heavily encouraged to go there, which I have to say suggests they're probably shit, because if they were, maybe people would. Like (laughs) timeshares. But there's been an uprising, and some of these replicants have come back to Earth, where our Blade Runner, called Decker, who's played by Harrison Ford, is tasked to track them down and quote retire them because get this replicants robots are actually banned from earth which i think is the one thing about this film that i have problems with because here's a film that's basically attempts to answer the question what does it mean to be human and the answer to that question can possibly be found in what we learned from samantha the heavily soiled sex robot. (laughs) Because if the question was, hey, we've made basic pleasure bots, they look like Daryl Hannah. I don't think it would matter if she killed you. I don't think it would matter if she could make you rich. Provided the answer to the question, can I stick my dick in her, was yes. I think the rest would just be silence. Yeah. It sets its stall really quickly, I think. Blade Runner, even with just the words that come up on the screen to set the story, made me go, all right, so who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? They're doing it. It's a very fuzzy line. And when Decker takes on the task, well, he's not really given any choice, but it's reluctantly. He doesn't want to do it anymore. There's a definite, like, yeah, probably shouldn't just be killing them because they're better than us. Yeah. Dodgy morals there, isn't it? Yeah. Are we nearly there yet? Is it achievable in four months? (laughs) Okay, so this is set in Los Angeles where there are incredibly busy streets. I mean, like Soylent Green level busy streets. And that's it, there's empty houses. Where do all these people live? But I think that's what's driven the need for flying cars. Because, oh yes, flying cars. Flying cars. Also ground cars. Uh, Sorry, on the road cars. I forgot what a road was. (laughs) The ground cars. Also that big pyramid building with all the lights. It's yeah. one of them in Stockport. It's a co-op building. Does it have flames coming out the top yeah, of it? absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Stockport for you. <laughs> what do the cars look like? Because I... They look like DeLoreans. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because that immediately dates them to a very specific yeah. time. And also, there's going to be a lot of injuries because those fuckers would slice you open the car doors, wouldn't they? Yeah, they're very boxy. They remind me of an old Ford Fiesta I used to have. I still like them, though. Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd have a go in a DeLorean. But should we talk about technology? I'm, I'm very keen to hear what you thought about the glow stick umbrellas. <laughs> they were like see-through max, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. All dystopian films are quite stylistically heavy and you can't take them as a literal idea of this is where future is going. That feels even more so, I think, with Blade Runner than other ones because obviously a lot of it is very steampunk. I yeah. mean, Ice and Eyeball's yeah. man, he would be bought in-house, wouldn't he? There's yeah. no way he'd be working in a shed. They'd put him in a nice lab, you would have thought. I think he started Microdose Tuesday, that's yeah. what he started. <laughs> Robots aside, there's really nothing more technical than you'd find in a ZX Spectrum in this. That great bit where he finds the woman with the snake tattoo. Mm-hmm. Zora. He finds her in the photograph, and he has to explain to... 
a TV. By the way, cats in 2019. I didn't see any, but they must be well happy because you can still sleep on the back of a telly. Yeah, he, he has to go in one, in, out, move, up there. And basically, it's something that today would just be done by this. Hannah is touching and then spreading her fingers open, as you would with an iPhone. Other technology available. Yeah. <laughs> what I thought was interesting about technology was the climax of the film. Now, Jen, you must have seen the climax of Blade Runner, even if you haven't seen Blade Runner, because it's incredibly famous scene. They're on a rooftop. Rutger Hauer, who plays bad bastard robot. Roy. Roy, which is, which is the, funny, the great name. name. Which is so funny. It's something about Rutger Hauer in this that he's kind of part Gollum, especially when he starts to whatever it is that's happening at the end, breakdown or he whatever you down. want to call it. He yeah. goes from being slick, quite well dressed robot replicant to oh my god, he's wearing pants and a formal shoe yeah. <laughs> and scampering about this ruined building. Well, yeah, so he's sort of part Gollum, part Jack Torrance, isn't he? Yes. When he butts his way yeah. through the yeah, Totally. I mean, it's actually a really enjoyable performance. I mean, he's very, very good. He's yeah, very I, I think he found his niche here. Anyway, so they're up on the roof. Now, behind them, it's pissing the rain, obviously, because it pisses the rain the whole way through. Hence the glow stick umbrellas. Like it does in Los Angeles, famously. Yeah. yeah. And they're up on the roof, and behind them, there is a second old neon sign. Yeah. Did you see what it was for? Uh, no, I can't remember. It's TDK. Oh, the tapes. Right now, see, TDK in 1982 was a household name yeah I had loads of them yeah it does still exist as a company but it's diversified and it basically produces things I googled it it basically produces components for other stuff so it is no longer a household name what would be up there now the equivalent would be Apple yeah and what I find interesting is that Apple have made arguably a lot of their money by putting a built in death life to their products which is kind of the point of Blade Runner and I do call my phone Roy that's weird Um, I've got a new Roy this week I have yeah time to die yeah one other thing on technology was and this is again I googled because I don't know I can't help myself right smart glass which exists in the house of Tyrell the glass goes black no the studio at Acast yes so I wondered when smart glass was invented turns out that information isn't on the internet so I don't know whether this is a prediction of smart glass or whether smart glass was a burgeoning technology in 1982. But the point is, apparently, it's the first use of smart glass ever seen in popular culture. Amazing. I thought it was a blind. I didn't even notice it was smart glass. I thought they just had an automatic blind. I didn't even know what smart glass was until this very moment. Yeah. Well, they had glasses well, yeah. turned into sunglasses as well. That's the same thing. Oh, yeah. So technology, I think in some ways it was deliberately off. But in a lot of ways, it's really, really, really off. It's a very dirty, grimy, violent, overpopulated future, which seems to be the classic dystopian future. Yeah. Lots of neon, lots of lights. But also very dark. Almost as dark as that episode of Game of Thrones, mate. Yeah. I was like squinting. What's going on? But also, it's worth saying that that's deliberate, obviously, because it's 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 metaphorical. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just right. in case people decide, because people get funny about Blade Runner, don't they? You're not allowed to criticise it. If you say it's very dark, people are like, it's supposed to be. You're like, I know, but it's still very dark. You say it's got Harrison Ford in it. Like, yeah, they, they hired him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, can we talk about fashion? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's, very, it's very early Lady Gaga, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. Crazy steampunk you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Daryl Hannah's hair, I could talk about for about half an hour. That wig needs, like, a spin-off. <laughs> 
seriously. <laughs> hats are very big. It looked like a royal wedding when he went to the bar. But hats, but like sort of horse riding helmets. When he walked into the bar, it's like when they walk into the bar in Star Wars. Yeah. And people are just, they're all the different creatures. Yeah. And, oh, I'm going to get shit for this. Whatever they are in Star Wars. <laughs> I don't know. The characters the what, all gather space together. Monkeys. The space monkeys all get together <laughs> for a jar of space juice. And they are not the droids you're looking for. That scene is very like what Harrison Ford walks into. Yeah. What about the women? Can we talk about the women? Well, we can, but I'm not actually 100% sure there are any actual women in this. I think all of the women characters... Are replicants. Are replicants. I don't think there are any actual women. That's true. Uh, they're, they're magic, oh, yeah. elderly Chinese women. Yeah, she's All replicants. Do they not count as women if they're replicants then? I don't know that you could gauge how women are treated in this society from how they treat the replicants okay. because to be fair they not. treat all yeah. the replicants I, like shit I would note though that the two female replicants deaths are incredibly violent mm. in comparison to the death of the male replicants yes like sort of voyeuristic violence when Daryl Hannah is like air humping as she goes Zora runs through about six sheets of plate glass yeah. and, and then it also, it's slow motion on those two deaths when it isn't so much on Leon and Roy that was Agreed. my observation also they're not wearing very much either of them for a lot of the a lot of their appearance on screen like you see Zora's tits and Daryl Hannah is wearing like oh, I mean bless her she's got legs that go on for days but she's wearing a leotard that you know is probably tickling her intestine <laughs> <laughs> Politics? The mob? In a lot of ways. Blade Runner doesn't really seem to ex- mm. explain the world that it exists in. It's just this story. Yeah. And everything else outside is just a mass of humanity that's walking very slowly. Obviously, big corporations are big in dystopia, and the Tyrell Corporation is big, and obviously the police are omnipresent, but you never get a particular feeling of what the situation I- even is. Apart from the Tyrell Corporation, I don't think there's any other kind of life that's shown to you well I think you're right I still don't know where anyone lives well William Sanderson has his own run down mansion he does for him and his toys <laughs> they anyway, are creepy as well yeah. those little critters which leads us I think a bit down the road of, of if this film has a Cassandra moment does this film have a Cassandra moment <laughs> <laughs> funny you should ask that Mick it just are, came to me Jen yeah, there are a few things that it does right that are worth mentioning but also worth mentioning those things are not exclusive to Blade Runner the reframing of language the euphemistic word retire when they mean kill but that stems from 1984 that's an established rule of dystopia there's also the constantly being told stuff which is very now but again that doesn't solely exist in Blade Runner the thing that's in the air telling them to move off world the fact that the police basically have a bot that goes round and says Nothing to see here, move along. They don't quite say it like that, but that's... You know, sometimes when I'm on trains, I'm like, why are you still talking? I don't need any more messages. We haven't moved since the last time you told me you didn't know why we hadn't moved. Yeah. So there are those two things, but I do think that Sebastian, J.F. Sebastian, as played by Sanderson. Oh, E.B. Farnham. Anyway, he is about the most hipster thing I've ever seen in my life. He's dressed like a a filthy court jester most of the time. And he creates just this ridiculous stuff that's a bit creepy and a bit kitsch and a bit, I could imagine, 
cafe in Shoreditch. Yeah. Just a note on the fashion as well. Sorry, I've just noticed another dystopian trope, or what I think might be another dystopian trope, that all the police, no matter where we're set in the future, still dress like a gumshoe detective. Yeah. Because that's well, how Ford's dressed. Well, I think that's, Although he does have a crazy shirt I, on at one point. I think that's because they want to create a line. It's about evolution. It's about how things have gone that way. So I think they deliberately call back to history in order to make the future seem more like it's in a sense of perspective. Okay, if that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. Right, how many Arnies are we giving it? Tell me which Arnie we're going with first. Let's go with uh, Governor of California first. So whether or not it's a good film. Yeah. I mean, it's undoubtedly a good film. There's no two ways about it. I actually think Harrison Ford is a bit so-so, a bit average, in it? Is he a good actor, though? Yes. Really? Yes. Really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like him. Thanks for joining in, Jen. <laughs> I like him, but I don't know he's that good an actor. I would agree, but in this film, I can imagine other people playing Decker. I struggle to imagine anybody else playing Press. I struggle to imagine anybody else playing Roy, to be honest. And like I say, the the bit at the, at the end when Rutger Hauer shuts down, spoiler alert, that was apparently something that was improvised, by the way, which is amazing. Did he improvise his um, long boxer shorts and the formal shoe look? <laughs> Possibly. I hope he just turned up for work And like they apparently that. just told him just to say some stuff. And he said all that stuff. Anyway, uh, that's quite moving when he's on the roof, shutting down. Great music, great cinematography, and they hold the shot. And then every time they go to Harrison Ford, he's got the same look on his face. Is he senselessly aggressive in it the whole way through, like, no, DCI no. Burnside? No. no. He's mostly, the things I've seen him in, he's been senselessly aggressive. No, I mean, he does romance Sean Young's character, uh, Rachel, in a way that I would, oh, not, yeah. would not be correct today. I was frowning quite yeah. severely at the, the screen at that point. Yeah, but it's, it's a classic, isn't it? She doesn't want it, but she does really. Oh, she she does. just likes a bit of a struggle. <laughs> so can I just, I have to defend Harrison Ford. Indiana <laughs> Jones. He, there is no one else who could be in like, oh. I love him, obviously. I love Indiana Jones, but I, I don't think he's that good an actor. Oh, I think he's amazing as Han Solo and as Indiana Jones. Yes. Thank you, Harrison, from me. Ignore everything Jen saying, Harrison. I, I, We're still friends. So the answer is, <laughs> the answer is five. It, five it's five Arnies in whether it's a good, a good film. Uh, what about Arnie? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what that was. The other Arnie. Get to the helicopters, Arnie, yeah. was it? Yeah. No, get to the choppers. <laughs> yeah, I think it's low. I think it's maybe a one. I think the idea that robots, that they might become a threat to us, that's all possible. But I think it discounts two sort of major issues that are facing us now in 2019 that wasn't facing us in 1982. Brexit. No. <laughs> First one of which is that, like I was saying, that whenever we talk about robots, the conversation inevitably becomes about sex because it really does. So I think it, it, it doesn't kind of look at how it affects... Robots might affect the way that people look at women. Not a big fan of Westworld, the series, to be honest. Tandy Newton and the Hot Mexican apart. That did actually question how violence put on a robot would impact on how people would see women in general, mm. which I think is an interesting point. And the second thing is that robots are going to put us out of work, which is what we realise now in 2019. 
that robots are going to steal our jobs. Yeah. And they're not going to look like pleasure bots. They're just going to be an arm that like moves a bit there to bit there. Or they're going to be telling us that we have put something unexpected in the bagging area. That could be sexy. <laughs> <laughs> See, oh, it always comes down to sex. In the bagging area. <laughs> it always comes down to sex with robots, doesn't it? So I actually think that those questions of what it means to be human aren't particularly, like, tackled because we don't see what actual humans are really doing in Blade Runner. So I'm going to give it a one. Doesn't mean it's not a great film, because okay. it very clearly is. What are we watching next time? Well, we're going to have to have a couple of weeks off because reasons. Yeah. Hannah's got some sexy stuff to put in her bagging area. <laughs> Takes a while. Yeah. I was thinking we could do, maybe do something that's not American. Yeah. Ah, should we do Battle Royale? Let's do that. I, I don't know when Battle Royale is actually set. It's in the not too distant future. So The year 2000. <laughs> so it's the joke that just keeps on giving. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.